Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Daryl Ray about his life, leaving the faith, and how religion influences human sexuality. Daryl Ray is a psychologist, author, and activist. He is the author of multiple books, including The God Virus and Sex and God. He also helped found the nonprofit organization Recovering from Religion. I asked him about his childhood growing up in a religious family in Wichita, Kansas. I was born into a uh, very religious family. My, uh, just to give you an illustration, my grandmother on my dad's side thought Jesus wrote the King James Version of the Bible. So there's that. And my, uh, wow. my grandfather, her hus- husband, uh, was also a preacher, country church preacher for 45 years. My father and and my other grandfather were elders in our church, and my parents actually were church founders. They founded two churches in Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up. And uh, my grandfather was a founding member of the church I grew up in. So it's, it's a lot. Plus, my parents became missionaries when they retired, went down to Mexico and started doing mission work down there. Uh, so I came out of that. I was in church if if I wasn't in church three times a week, something was wrong. I was sick or we were on vacation, but three times a week was like the minimum. Sometimes it was four and five times a week. And even my own, my Boy Scout troop was in the church. So I was in the church for that. <laughs> it was just church, church, church all the time until I got to be about high school. And then I started moving a, a bit away from just constant church. But I did some other I mean, so I, I've gone through this whole life up to all the time I'm uh, 16 or so and going to church all the time and studying and doing Bible study and doing Sunday school. Also, um, I was in Bible quiz, uh, you know, those contests and our church against another church. And I wasn't ever very good at it because I didn't study very hard. What denomination was it? End up, independent Christian. We were the only Christians and we only dunk you once. So, but if you're not dunked, you're going to hell. It's that simple. No sprinkling. And I, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth of the gospel and theology from my grandmother. That's where I learned most of my theology. And I don't know if you remember Madeline Murray O'Hare, the founder of American Atheists. Mm-hmm. Well, when she did her um, uh, thing and got prayer, prayer kicked out of the schools. My, my granny... My granny would hear her name on the radio or the television. I was only like 12, 13 years old. And granny would say, that woman's worse than the devil. Well, (laughs) with granny, you you didn't argue with granny. You didn't ask questions because she'd tell you to go get a switch and she'd switch you for sassing her. So it took me like three or four months to get up the courage to ask granny a simple question. How can that woman be worse than the devil? And she says, well, at least the devil believes in God. I think some people might not understand that when you talk about that it has to be full immersion and you have to only do it once, you're not kidding about that, right? Like there are actual debates between Christians about whether you need full immersion or just a sprinkling will do. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Because Jesus got dunked. So if if you don't do it the way Jesus did it, then you're obviously not following Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you the truth, according to my granny. <laughs> now, fast forward, you know, about 16 years uh, through childhood, and I'm starting to get a little bit independent, and the Vietnam War is going crazy. And uh, I, uh, I asked my dad about the Vietnam War when I'm like 16, because it's not looking very good. <laughs> and uh, my dad being religious and also a very, very... Uh, you, you know, Christianist or Christian nationalist, I guess you could say. I don't know that he was anything like what we're seeing today. But when he told me, I said, Dad, what would you do if if they wanted to take me to Vietnam? And he said, well, I'd, I'd write a letter to my congressman. Uh, okay, <laughs> what would, what else would you do? <laughs> and that was about the end of that discussion. He'd write a letter to his congressman. 
far as I know, my dad never wrote a letter to the congressman, but I was on practically on my way to Vietnam, and I told my dad, I'm, I'm not going. I read the Bible. I've got friends that are Quakers, and I know what pacifism is, and I read Tolstoy, and and uh, I read George Fox. And I, I read all these um, pacifist Christians who really took the, uh, the, the saying of George Fox, I live in the power of him that has no need for war, and uh, took that to heart. And my dad, of course, thought that was horrible because that's not a true Christian. Uh, you can't be a pacifist. you got to be an American soldier to be a true Christian. Onward, Christian soldiers, you know. We sang that mm-hmm. damn thing frequently in our church. Uh, so it was I – got, I got into a, the only super serious conflict of my entire life I got in with my father when I told him, Dad, I'm going to file as a conscious objector. I will not go to Vietnam. I will go to jail. I'll go to Canada. I will not fight in that war. It's a colonialist war. Uh, we have no reason to be there. It's a civil war, and uh, it's not our fight. So you actually uh, had been drafted at that point? No, no, I had a high, but I had a, my, my draft number was number thirty-six. Now, the lower your draft number is, the more likely you are to become cannon fodder. That's basically what it is. So okay. having, having a number thirty-six, I was going. There was, you know, no doubt about it. I was going, and. Uh, so my dad grabbed me. It's the first time my dad ever, I mean, he spanked me when we were kids. That that was part of the deal back then. But this was serious. I mean, this, my dad was, he grabbed me in a way I've never seen, experienced. He had a look on his face like I've never seen an experience. And then he got control of himself and said, okay, let's pray about this. <laughs> and he, he literally <laughs> forced me to the ground in front of his bed. And we both prayed over me. You know, hearing, listening to Jesus and going to Vietnam. <laughs> and I went straight after that the next day down to the draft board and filed my uh, conscience objector status. I got it about three months later. and uh, But I was also on, in college. And back then, you still got a deferment. You got a deferment until you graduate from college. And then, then they took you. So I still had, a, I had still had two or three years to go before that happened. So I, I stayed out of Vietnam until I got to into college, and then I, the war was cl- close to winding down, and I wanted to go to seminary because I thought I wanted to be a preacher. Um, and and um, I, I, the, the irony was I'd, I'd gotten a degree in, in sociology with a minor in anthropology, undergraduate, and, mm-hmm. and I still wanted to be a preacher. You know, I never – I always believed evolution, evolution – made perfect sense to me. From the time I was 12 years old, I loved evolution. I loved biology. Uh, so I studied it, and I, I knew more than, you know, my parents weren't well-educated. None of my family was well-educated, and they thought evolution was devil talking. But I didn't. And that's what also was taught in your church as well? My church I, I, my church was kind of uh, agnostic about evolution. It was it was funny. I I could talk about evolution. Nobody else seemed to be too uh, upset about it. My grandparents weren't happy that I believed it, but they didn't get mad at me about it. And in fact, I even, my parents started a church uh, in one of the churches they started was Antioch Christian Church. And while I was in college, uh, my junior, senior year, I took a part-time job at Antioch Christian Church. By this time, my parents had left and gone back to their own church, their home church. But I took a job as the youth minister there. I was getting paid the grand sum of $5 a week to be the youth minister in about 1980, I'm sorry, about 1970, probably 1970, 71. And $5 wasn't that much back then, of course. (laughs) It's really not now. And I'm I'm, I'm taking this $5 a week, and I've taken this youth group from like three or four kids a week up to 25 and 30 kids. I mean, I'm really, I'm good at this stuff. I can get people to come to come here. Uh, I wasn't too keen on preaching about Jesus when they came, but I, I got them there. I also start t- seeing Sunday school class for this group, for this church. And, uh, but you know, here I am, I'm one of the, I'm this eldest son of the founder of this church, even though the founders are gone. And I'm a college kid. I'm on my way to seminary. I'm going to go to seminary after this. 
So I get a, I get a lot of slack. So I'm teaching Sunday school, and I decide I'm going to teach a series on evolution in Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the elders got word of this, and they decided they were going to put Alma, uh, one of the wife of the one of the top elders, who I really liked. She and I got along really well. I liked her a lot. She was almost like a grandmother to me. So Alma came in and she sat into my Sunday school classes while I taught evolution. And she didn't bat, <laughs> she didn't bat an eye. Now, <laughs> of course, at the time, I'm trying to say, well, evolution and, and, uh, and Christianity are compatible. You know, here's, mm-hmm. what, here's what evolution says, but it's not, you know, it, it's not contradictory to Christianity. Of course, it was, I, was, I was preaching out of my ass on that one because I was probably lying to him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe it. Anyway, Alma loved me, and all these people knew I was the you know the son of the elders. So I, I got I got a pass, and I and I, yeah, that was a that was almost a traumatic experience for me in some ways because they only they paid me five dollars a week, and they promised me fifteen dollars a week if I was successful. And they we kind of agreed on the success. Well, the success was you get it from three or four up to ten or fifteen, and we'll give you fifteen a week. Well, I get up to twenty-five or thirty a week, and uh, one Sunday I I'm I'm at Friends University going to college, and uh, I I have I meet this guy. We become really good friends. It turns out he's a church, he's a Christian church minister, but for the Black Christian Church in town, same so-called denomination as us. But I'm sitting here think talking to this guy one day, and it dawns on me I've been around this church for you know, all 17, 18, 19 years of my life, I had no idea we had a black Christian church in the whole world. I never knew there was one of those, let alone right here a few miles from my own church. So I said, well, we should get our Sunday school, I mean, our our youth group classes together. And he agreed. So uh, we set a date and I, uh, we had to meet in this little, it was a Boy Scout cabin is what it amounted to. The Boy Scouts owned it and they, you know, let, other people use it. And uh, we had, we were meeting there every week and uh, he, he got his youth group together and then came over on a bus. Well, the elders of the church that I was in at Antioch Christian got wind that some black kids might be coming to, to our youth group. Now here's the deal. Until that moment, I had never been able to get anyone. I, you know, I got 25, 30 horny teenagers in this building and they're sneaking out, you know, and who knows what they're doing. I can't keep track of them all. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep them corralled and the parents expect me to keep them corralled. And you're, Oh, by the way, you're getting paid $5 a week to keep them corralled, but I can't get anybody to come help me until that night. When that night came and the black kids showed up in the church bus, their church bus, and they got off. I must've had 10 white parents there. I got more help that night than I got all the rest of the year put together. And they showed up the minute those kids started getting off, they herded the white kids into the, into the cabin, put them all on this, the right hand side of the room it was set up like a church, it had a little stage and all. And, and then when the black kids came in, they said, Oh, you guys could sit over here on the left side. And I am fucking, um, I am so embarrassed. I'm so pissed. I, I'm livid. I can't hardly believe this is happening. But what mm-hmm. could I do? You know, I, they're the they're the they're the people who own this church, so to speak. I do my little evening, you know, youth group lesson kind of thing, and when it's over, the the white parents stand up, get in the middle aisle so that they separate. They're clearly between the white kids and the black kids, and they say, "Well, let's let our black guests go over here and get the Kool Aid and cookies and get out." <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and then the white kids can get their cookies and Kool-Aid. So they basically said, get your Kool-Aid and cookies and get back on the bus and get out of here. Wow. I, I, I was, I was just blown away. I, that was anyway. So about a week later, I was already scheduled a meeting with the board of directors to get my $15 raise. And uh, I show up at the meeting, you know, at the time I'm supposed to. And I, present here's my results we're getting 25 or 30 kids every week and all in all the things i've done and programs i've done and they basically said well we don't have the money to give you 15 dollars, so we're going to leave it at five 
In other words, we're not going to pay anymore, so we hope you quit. <laughs> They didn't want to. Fi- they didn't want to fire me because you know I'm the son of the founder of the church. That would look bad, right? Well, I, right. I I quit. I went back to I went back to my home church and uh, finished. And so during during all of this, though, you still believed what you were saying in terms of the preaching, right? You still believed in God. You still believed in Jesus, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I did. I, I was a bad Christian, though. I, you know, you can't be a really good Christian and believe evolution like I did. Plus, I, I believed in social justice. I believe in civil rights. I mean, the next thing I did was <laughs> come back to my parents' home church and start a bus ministry. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of bus ministry, but no, what's that? You uh, well, our church had a bus. You know, they used to take kids out to church camp and field trips and stuff. So it, but it set in the back lot. Probably, it probably only got driven once at once a month. It was never used. It's a whole bus, school bus the church mm-hmm. had bought. Never got used. So what I did was I went to the elders and I said, I'm going to start a bus ministry. I read a book on the subject. And what you do is you get those church bus that never gets used. And you go out into the neighborhoods and you knock on everybody's doors and say, hey, we got Sunday school. Next Sunday, we'll come by in the bus, pick up your kids, take them to Sunday school and bring them back when it's finished. Well, the parents, of course, we do it in the the housing housing high rise housing places and the was it title title nine housing or whatever whatever it is. We mm-hmm. knock at all these doors and the these parents who, you know, they're probably working two jobs. Both parents are working, or there's no two parents at home, and they'd look at me and say, "They you could see it in their head. Okay, this person's going to take my children." keep them for three hours on a Sunday morning and I could sleep late. Sure. Take my kids. So I, within, within a, within a month of starting this church ministry, I, I was picking up 40 kids every Sunday morning and bringing them to church. Now, you, of course, about half to two thirds of these kids were black kids and the rest were probably Hispanic kids. You know, there was almost no white kids in these uh, housing uh, programs. Uh, so, so I'm bringing a bunch of black kids and Hispanic kids into my lily white church. And all the little old ladies in white hair were just aghast. No black person had ever been inside that church before, I'll bet. I, I, I never saw one and until I started my bus ministry. Well, the bus ministry lasted about a year till I graduated from college. And I had this guy helping me. He was a lawyer, uh, not much older than me, and he seemed to be very committed to same things I was. So he was helping me with the bus ministry. So when I left, I left it in his hands. And I called back a week or two after I left. I went down to Nashville to go to graduate school. And I find out nobody's driven the bus for ever since I left. So I started asking some questions. I asked my parents some questions. What I find out was that guy had been a plant. The board had put him in to help me just to keep an eye on me. And then as soon as I left, he said, screw this, I'm out of here. And he killed the whole bus ministry. So that was my second lesson in Christian racism. Uh, it was pretty, it was very bad. I just, you know, what do you know when you're 19, 20 years old? And this was all very surprising to you at the time that that kind of everybody in the church you were going to was so racist? Or was that something you kind of knew beforehand? I know. I don't think I knew it. I lived in a lily white you know, a bubble. And uh, Wichita is a very segregated city, very segregated. Mm-hmm. And the only time I ever got ex- exposed to anybody besides lily white people is when I went to the swimming pool, uh, the city swimming pool to take swimming lessons. And I was one of the few white kids there because it was a swimming pool in the segregated uh, black part of town. So, no, I just, you know, when you're 19, 20 years old, you don't think about these things. You're just learning about these things. I mean, I'm learning about the Vietnam War. I'm learning about international relations. I'm learning mm-hmm. about what the church says about war. I mean, nobody talks about what does the Christian church believe about war. Have you ever heard a sermon on that? It never happens unless you're a Quaker church or a church of brethren, Mennonite maybe, but you never hear a mainstream church have a sermon on what is the what is the Christian take on war? And yet, if you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, there's quite a bit of stuff in there on the Christian view of violence and, and war. 
but nobody talks about it. You certainly don't hear evangelical churches talking about it. So I was learning all that. And of course, Leon Tolstoy was a great Christian and a great pacifist. And he read the same stuff. I read him and I thought, well, this is interesting. A Christian that doesn't believe in war. And then I had an uncle that was a Quaker and he had been a conscious objector of World War II. And as a result, he got sent to California to fight forest fires until for the entire entirety of the war. That was the rule back then. If you didn't want to go be a soldier and spend your two years fighting somebody, fighting, you'd spend the entire war fighting fires. And hmm. the, the casualty rate among firefighters in California was about the same as casualty rate of, of soldiers in the Pacific or, or in the European theater. It was dangerous. It was fucking dangerous to, to be a firefighter. Yeah, you're wow. up in a forest using primitive tools. You can imagine what kind of tools they had in 1942. So anyway, I was able to talk to my Uncle Keith and kind of get an understanding of why he you know, was a uh, constant objector. And then I learned, uh, at the same time, I learned my grandfather. My grandfather was a conscious objector in World War One, which blows my mind. These are all people that are standing here gung-ho Vietnam, and yet... He was a concept objector in World War One. He now back in World War One, you would go to prison, or you could claim CO status, and they would take you in the army and make you do something non-combatant, like be a medic. In in his case, he was a trumpet player, so he played in the band. So he was playing instead of shooting somebody, he was playing in the band, which is a little. <laughs> but <laughs> but he he could do that. I mean that was that was legit. That was the way it worked in World War One. So I'm learning all this when I'm roughly from 17 to 20 years old. I'm pretty focused on me at that time. I mean, am I have to go to this war? Do I believe this war? What's my religion say about this war? I wasn't as I, mean, I was very much paying attention to civil rights, and I did some civil rights work. I just I wasn't that. If it makes sense, when you're 17 or 18, I, I wasn't multitasking too well. And yet, as you can tell, I was very interested in civil rights, very interested in bringing the, quote, gospel to people who want the same color as me, those kind of things. And I got that from my grandmother, who believed, you know, she was racist as hell. But she'd sing, Jesus loves the little children, uh, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. She's the woman that taught me that song from the day I was born. I, she must have sang that song to me thousands of times. Well, I actually took it seriously, <laughs> which I think she was a bit surprised about. <laughs> Carol, you shouldn't be blaming black children into white churches. <laughs> so there, it was it was kind of interesting because there's something about me, and I don't know what it is, Chris. I just always seem to take the angle that's just a little different than everybody else around me. And I'm I am so grateful that I've had that that tendency in my life. I don't I, I I don't I don't take dogma easily. I don't I don't absorb dogma easily. It's like I was born with a pretty good coat of oil on me, and the water just drips right off. It doesn't stick very well. Now I'm not huh. saying I haven't been bamboozled a few times in my life with dogma and with um you know religious brainwashing, which I had early on, and I, mean, I was surrounded by it. But by the time I got out of college and I was in seminary, I went to Scarrett College for Christian Workers in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was it turned out to be a super liberal seminary, so liberal that it's out of business today. It doesn't exist. Uh, but I got my master's degree there, and the beauty of going to Scarrett was it was right across the street from Vanderbilt and Peabody College, two incredibly good academic institutions. And I could take any courses I want at those schools at the same tuition I was paying at Scarrett. Well, Scarrett was like half to a third the tuition of these others. So I was getting kind of two for the price of one, if you will. I took every psychology, every social psychology, every anthropology course, every theology course I possibly could at Vanderbilt and Peabody. I took as few courses as I could at Scarrett because Scarrett wasn't very, very good academically, which at the end of two years, I realized all this religion's bullshit. There, there's really nothing there. It's, 
you know, look at the man behind, don't look at the man behind the curtain kind of stuff. And oh, the other thing I learned, see, so we've, so we've talked about the war, we've talked about civil rights, but what I didn't, what we haven't talked about is sexuality and, and uh, LGBTQ stuff. Mm-hmm. I get to, I get to scare at college for Christian workers and I'm thinking I'm going to a, a Christian seminary. When I get there, I realize half the people there are gay. And they're not, they're not afraid of it. And they're in the middle of Nashville, Tennessee, the South, and they're openly gay on this seminary campus. I'm kind of mind-boggling. I because until that time, and here I am, 22 years old, I'm freshly married to a, my my then wife, and I don't I've never met a gay person in my whole life that I knew of. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't even know that that was a thing until that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I kind of knew it was a thing. I just had never met anybody, you know, that was gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I look back and I, I knew a lot of people were gay. I just didn't know they were gay. <laughs> it was, it was. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unveiling. It's like slowly but surely the curtain, one curtain pulls back and you see the war. And then the next curtain pulls back and you see race in our culture. And then the next curtain pulls back and you see LGBTQ. That's kind of the way it happened with me, and one day I'm in uh, I'm in the dorm. Uh, I, I had I was in the married dorm, married housing is what I was in. But I was over in the, the then men's dorm with a guy, and we were going to study. And and he takes his shirt off, and then starts getting more undressed, and say, "Hey, would you like to get comfortable too?" I'm thinking, "Wait a minute, what is all about?" <laughs> I, <laughs> So it leads to a good, interesting conversation. I'm straight. I, 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 I'm probably a seven on the Kinsey scale. But I, I had to then talk to somebody who was gay and, and out about it and and comfortable with their sexuality, so comfortable that he was willing to, you know, come on to me. And it was, that was like a, a mind-bogglingly amazing conversation. But hmm. I don't think I'm that much different than a lot of people on this planet. I, I think – we go through life in a bubble or, or in our cultural bubble. And every now and then we see glimpses of other cultures or glimpses of other people's lifestyles or other, other people's beliefs. And if you just pull the curtain back a little bit in that area, you get exposed to a dramatically different world and different worldviews. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just an amazing exploration. Uh, that's all I can say. It was an exploration that I went through over a period of about 10 years from, I would say, roughly 15 years old until about 25. And uh, I I almost never talk about you. You've, you've got me to talk about more than I usually ever talk about on this area of my life. But it's it's interesting. I don't think about it very often. Do you know whatever happened to that uh, the guy who you had that long conversation with? No, I don't have a clue. But uh, I do know that. It was remarkable how many people that I graduated with uh, went on to be youth ministers or music ministers in their local churches. And uh, I I do know a number of them that have now left totally. They may not have left religion, but they left left the ministry. Hmm. But no, I don't don't remember. I I didn't really pay much attention to the people in Scarlet. I was too – I had a wife. I was – working and I was, I, I got a job. I had to get a job. There's, you know, a lot of things were happening. So that wasn't top of my priority list, but that once I got through with my master's degree, I went, got a job as a, as a counselor in a youth uh, treatment facility for adult uh, youth, youth offenders and loved it. Just loved counseling. And, but I didn't have any training for that. I had a degree in religion, but they'd hire anybody you know, that had a master's degree. So I realized I, I need to go back to school and learn what I'm, figure out what I'm doing here. So I went back to, got got admitted to the doctoral program at, at uh, Peabody College, got my doctorate in, at Peabody and Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt merged with Peabody at the same time. So I kind of got both on that. When you realized that you didn't kind of believe the religion anymore was that did that cause a lot of anxiety with you or your relationship with your your then wife or your relationship with your family or did it cause some some trauma for you in that in that sense or was it kind of 
easy in a way. That's uh, you. It's a good question because a lot of people do experience that, but I did not. I would. I am very lucky, being the oldest child, being the most responsible of the four boys. I, well, I'd say one of the two most responsible. The four boys in our family, no girl. My parent, my, my and I had a great close relationship with my mom and pretty much my dad too. So I, I just escaped all that <laughs> when when I got divorced in nineteen eighty eight. From my first wife, I uh, started dating, and a year or two after that, I started dating this one gal pretty seriously. And my mom, I hadn't really come out to my mom. She just knew I never went to church, and I wouldn't darken the door of a church, and neither would any of my brothers. Funny thing, Hmm. as religious as my parents were, not one of the four boys in our family ever darkened the church after they left, except me. I Hmm. kept going back because I was, you know, seminary and all. But yeah, I, it didn't have any trauma for me. I told my mom. My mom said, "Well, I hope she, when I was dating that gal, I, I, she said, I hope she's a good Christian girl." And I said, "Mom, if she's a good Christian girl, I'm going to run as fast as I can." And that's when I, <laughs> that's when I came out to my mom as an atheist. And that was 1989, and my mom died in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2007, I believe it was. And we had a great relationship to the day she died. Religion never came into it. I was rather pleased to watch my parents. I told you they became missionaries. They came. Mm-hmm. They became. They became more and more and more liberal as they as they got older, and more caring and more understanding of other people and their condition. And they got rather pissed off at all the other missionaries they kept encountering in Mexico. They go down there in Mexico to help people, and my parents were true humanists. They go down there with shit to give people, to teach people, to help people. They didn't give Bibles. They didn't give Bible chick tracts or any that shit to them. They would give people shampoo and toothbrushes and toothpaste, and they would help build dormitories for orphanages. That's the kind of stuff my parents did. I I was so supportive of what they were doing. I actually gave them money. You'll never hear Daryl say he gave missionaries money, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> With them, not a lot, but I just thought, okay, mom and dad, I can get behind actually doing stuff. And they would get mad at the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the, I mean, not the, the uh, Pentecostals that go down there and just take take their money and give them Bibles and pray over their pray over them to get well and not provide them any medical help. So my parents had their eyes opened through their missionary work, and by the end of their life. They weren't going to church. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. They really? weren't talking. They weren't talking about God. I didn't see them reading any Bibles for the last ten years, uh, the last five years of my parents' life, almost the last ten years of my mom's life. Uh, I I saw almost no religiosity. I think the going down to Mexico and being a missionary cured them. They realized how how horrible religion was down there. And they went down there. One of the reasons they went down there was they were feeling like, you know, the Catholic Church has led these people astray. We needed to go down there. And what they got down there and found out was every other church has led these people astray, too. Nobody's actually doing anything to help these people get out of the poverty that they're finding there. Golly, we're going we're going way off the rails here, Chris. No, no, what... I think it's fascinating. It's really interesting. Uh, I, it, it surprises me too. I think if you were to ask me before we had this conversation if Daryl's parents would have been more humanist as they got older, I wouldn't have believed you. You know, but mm. uh, wow, yeah. it's, that's a really interesting story. Yeah, it was. I had I told you my grandfather, my dad's side, we called him Pappy. He was a country church minister for forty five years. And I saw the same thing in him. He, <laughs> he, his wife died. My my real grandmother died, and uh, he remarried a woman a few years later, named Virginia. And um, Virginia, he had known Virginia his whole life, um, but he got remarried to Virginia, and Virginia absolutely had no use for religion. I don't think she was an atheist, but she, she had not a good word to say about religion. So here she is marrying my grandfather, who's a country church preacher. And he says, are you going the first Sunday there together after they got married? She's lived in, moved in with him. He gets ready to go to church. He said, are you coming with me? And she basically says, hell no, I'm not going to church. 
<laughs> and, and she absolutely refused to go to church. Well, it wasn't long after that he dropped the whole church thing. And I, hmm. I don't, I never saw him go to church. He would go to, he was in a nursing home for a while. He'd go to chapel and listen to the sermon there. But he stopped preaching entirely when he married her. Within within a few months after he married her, he stopped preaching. And then I realized it was my grandmother who had been pushing all the religious bullshit on him. And he had he had accepted it. And he had become a really, really good Republican minister. You ever go to hear him preach a sermon? It was always a Republican sermon. It was I hated having to go here and preach, but we had to go to church with him every Sunday if, if, before before my grandmother died. Hear that Republican sermon. But anyway, let's see where were we. So I, when I get finished with my doctorate degree at Vanderbilt, I I go into clinical psych for about ten years, and I'm a I'm a decent psychologist on Monday. I'm a good one on Monday. On Tuesday, I'm not as good. On Wednesday, I'm average. You didn't want to get me on Thursday or Friday. I was terrible. So after a few years of that, I realized maybe I'm not cut out for clinical psychology. And uh, I moved on to organizational psych, which I really loved. And I pretty much did that for a better part of 30 years. So for, for those that don't know, what is organizational psychology? Well, for me, and it, it does differ, it's it's how an organization organizes people for for productivity. So I was teaching people how to work in teams together. I was teaching managers how to treat people well, you know, it's a, it's a radical idea, but if you treat people with dignity and respect in the workplace, they actually produce better. Uh, and Shocking. that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of, and, and I wrote two books. My first two books were on those two subjects, on that very subject. So um, uh, my, my first book was published by McGraw-Hill on Teaming Up, and my second was published by APC Press called uh, The Performance Culture. But I, what I was doing is looking at the anthropology productivity and and uh, organizational culture and organizational psychology in both those books but my work was how teaching managers a little bit about just basic behavioral psychology and how do you supervise people how do you train people how do you nurture and mentor people in the workplace and if you do a good job of it you get high productivity and people stick around and oh by the way they teach other people how to be good too so that was a really good career. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. I got to travel literally all over the world, from England to all over Canada, all over North America. I had, you name a Fortune 500 company, I probably had them as a client. For you know, a, lo- a large number of the Fortune 500s were my, you know, General Electric was a client of mine. Uh, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield was a client of mine. Cummins Diesel Engine was a client of mine. Uh, I had a lot of mental health institutions or organizations that engineering organizations, you name it. I just had tons of these, and I was I was good at teaching people how to how to behave in the workplace, how to treat people right, and I I enjoyed that. But it also led to doing clinical psychology in the executive suite. There's so many CEOs or managers are having trouble with their marriages or their kids or something. So I <laughs> still had to do clinical, but kind of on a different in a different way. But as I'm going through all of that, Chris, I'm, I, I'm still interested in church state separation kinds of stuff. And I've always been interested in psychology, religion, ever since I read Emil Durkheim, the varieties of religious experience, uh, I'm sorry, Emil Durkheim and William James, the varieties of religious experience back uh, in my, in my graduate uh, school time in Scarrett and uh, Vanderbilt so I just kept drawing back, coming back to some stuff, and I wrote a I wrote a term paper while I was in uh, seminary called on uh, on the civil religion, and I I tried and tried and tried to find that term paper I couldn't find it anywhere, so I said I'm just going to sit down and rewrite it and, and get it as an article and publish it in American Atheist Magazine or somewhere like that. I get to writing, and I write an article, and I write two articles, then I write three articles. I'm thinking, I had no idea I had this much in my head to write. <laughs> so <laughs> I I sent it off to my best friend, uh, uh, Dr. Dan Dana, who's uh, he is another psychologist. We've known each other for 35 years. And I say, Dan, what do you think of this? 
And he comes back, he reads the first three chapters that I, or articles, I think they're articles at the time. He said, Daryl, I don't know what you're writing here. But I've never read anything like that in my life. This looks like a book. And uh, at that moment, I realized, oh, shit, I'm not writing articles. I'm writing a damn book. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of or the uh, birth of the God virus. And it, it, it was just it was one of those books I'd been writing in my head for decades. So when I actually sat down and wrote it, it took me four months to write the thing. It took me another couple of months to get it edited. And then then I published it. And it it was like a bestseller. I it just took off the minute I published it. it was it, it it went way beyond my wildest expectations. I most books no you know most books don't sell that well. You never make your money back on it. So oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah. for those who don't know, what what is the thesis of the God virus? What made it different from other books uh, at the time? Well, I was reading. I'd read Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris, Dennett. I'd read all the all the major writers, I, uh, and none of them were none of them, to my satisfaction, or even close, were talking about it from a psychological perspective. And I I thought I have something to add here. It's something that nobody else is talking about. And that is, how does mimetics, which Dawkins first came up with in his book, uh, The Selfish Gene, how does memes or mimetics work with religion? Now, Dawkins had written an essay uh, on mimetics and some other things since that book came out. But nobody had sat down and said, let's just systematically look at every aspect of this concept uh, from, from within religion. Now, I did, when I wrote the book, I do thank Dawkins for the concept and attribute, you know, my inspiration to him largely. But I only use the word memetics once in the entire book, and that's in the introduction, because I, I did not want people focusing on that. I wanted people to focus on what is religion doing once it gets into your brain. Because once you understand that religion is remarkably behaves remarkably similar to what a cold virus looks like or a rabies virus or a COVID-19 virus. Mm-hmm. And all these things, all these things want to get in and they into your brain or into your body. And then they want to replicate and then they need to get from your body or your brain to the next. And so if you look at, if you look at religion as simply an infectious disease, not much different than the COVID-19 disease, you will see it spreads, and it spreads very similar. And the most interesting thing is, as we've seen, if you go back and look at history, and that's why I put so much history in my all my books, have lots of history in them, because if you look at the history, you'll see that religion and disease go together. Wherever the Spanish went in South America, smallpox went. So religion and disease, and, and if you look at what's going on today, where are the outbreaks? Where were the outbreaks in Korea early on? They came from a damn church. Where's the mm-hmm. outbreaks now in the United States? You can trace them back to religious meetings frequently. So religions and, and viruses, <laughs> is they are very infectious things. And I wanted to teach people how you get infected. It's, it's important to know how you get infected with COVID. It's important to know how you get infected with a flu or smallpox. So why not just as important to know how you get infected with Jehovah's Witnesses or infected with Catholicism? And, th- and th- so that's the premise of the book. Here's the way you can avoid getting infected with the God virus, any any God virus, because every God virus is different. There are 140 different rhinoviruses, and rhinoviruses are what generally cause colds. There's 140 uh-huh. different rhinoviruses. Well, you know, you could get one today and another one tomorrow, and you won't have immunity to them. Just because you had one doesn't mean you're going to be immune to the next one. So the same thing is true of religion. You might not catch the Catholic virus, but you might catch the Pentecostal virus. So my goal is to teach people how people get infected and then how you immunize yourself against infection, period for all God viruses. 
And I could have gone a lot farther, but I wanted to keep the focus on religion. I touched a few times in the book on um, other ideologies. For example, I, I look at uh, communism as it was practiced in in the East, in in China, in Russia. Those and, and North Korea even today. Those look a lot like religions, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm ashamed I'm unashamed to say that in the book that those are all religions. They don't they don't look like religions because we're not used to look at them that way. But Lenin is entombed in Moscow, and people can still go and look at him. That looks a lot like a like a sarcophagus of a of a pharaoh that gets uh, deified when he dies, or look at what's going on with. Uh, Kim Jong Il and his father and his grandfather, you know, those those people are deified and they're worshipped. And in fact, the grandfather is president of North Korea for eternity. Now, doesn't that sound like a religious idea to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's eternity, right? Well, that's and and so the position of president of North Korea is occupied by a dead person. <laughs> it's like it's like Jesus is president of the United States for eternity. Yes, okay. And of course I went on I started promoting the God virus and working on uh, you know speaking around and promoting the book on all sorts of platforms and that was podcasts were really getting going then so I was on a lot of podcasts. I, and I learned I really enjoy talking on podcasts cuz see I can talk talk all day Chris and you never tell me <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> and then uh, and then what happened was I started getting people who read the God virus saying I need help. I don't can't find you to help me. And that's when I started recovering from religion. It was just like two months after the book came out, and I was already getting swamped with people saying I need help. Uh, so, and I had a meeting in the back room. I've told this story a hundred times, so your listeners probably already heard it. Back room of an IHOP right here in Kansas City, where I live, and 11 people showed up. And I only knew one of these 11 people. And I simply asked two questions. How did religion hurt you and how have you benefited from leaving? And two or three hours later, the restaurant manager's kicking us out because they're closing the restaurant or that back room anyway. And, and I knew at that moment that I had a tiger by the tail, that I needed to do something. And that was the that was the beginning of Recover from Religion. It started with a single little meeting in the back of an IHOP. And from there, we have now grown to be, I think we've got volunteers in almost 30 countries now. We get chats from 25 to 30 countries every month and, and phone calls. We've actually got dedicated phone calls now from all over North America, including Canada, uh, New, um, Australia, the United Kingdom, and South Africa. We'll probably have more dedicated phone lines in the future. And we're helping thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of people. I mean, I am not exaggerating. It's, it's, it's at least tens of thousands of people are getting help by recovering from religion every year. And I anticipate, and we're growing in almost an exponential growth rate. Our uh, helpline director told me the other day that we have 160 volunteers in training, in training, <laughs> which I was blown away by that number because that's about how many total volunteers we have, somewhere around 160, 200 volunteers. So we are actually on track to more than, probably more than double the number of volunteers that we have over the last uh, 18 months or, or so. It's, it just shows how much need there is out there. There's a lot of need for people. People are leaving religion in droves. But, but just because you leave does not mean you weren't harmed. There wasn't religious trauma put into your brain from a young child. It, it almost reminds me of like physical therapy after an injury. You know, you, you have the yeah. injury and then you, you have to go to physical therapy for a while to, to kind of get back to, to normal again. And so is that kind of how you see recovering from religion? I actually think that's a great metaphor, Chris. I, I fell down and broke my, uh, or not broke, but really injured one of my shoulders in a hiking, hiking accident several years ago. And I had never been to physical therapy in my life. And I'm walking around thinking this damn thing will get better sooner or later. I'll just ignore it. 
I'm not, I'm not as smart as I look sometimes. After about after about three months of being in almost constant pain, I thought maybe I better get my doctor look at this. Garcia looks at it, X-rays. Well, thankfully you didn't break it, but it is hurting. It is injured. So she sent me to physical therapy, and you know, two months of physical therapy, and I was almost like new. I I had because I had never experienced physical therapy before. I had no idea what they could do. They're like miracle workers. I could start believing in that religion. It is a, it is, <laughs> it is really amazing what physical therapists to do. So I have new and very great respect for uh, uh, w- the training and the knowledge of, of physical therapists. So to take your metaphor a little bit, I think that's exactly right. Here's the deal. I think I we see people getting out of religion and suffering. And I mean, they suffer sometimes for decades with night terrors, with fear of hell, with disruptions to family, with with uh, Pascal's wager kind of bullshit going off in their brain all the time. And they don't know what to do with it. And with, if they just call us, I guarantee you, it will cut the grieving process. It'll cut down the suffering. It'll increase your level of joy and appreciation for the only life you have by just talking to us, we can get resources to you that you don't even know about. One of our, one of our, one of our key leaders put up a, a story up yesterday. I can't use the name or anything for confidentiality reasons, but he said he, he left Mormonism, and he said if I could have just had these resources when I left five or six years ago, it would have probably made my uh, my, my recovery time much, much faster. And that's what we see all the time is people are suffering and they're suffering because of crazy ideas put in their head and they don't know how to undo those crazy ideas and we can help them. And if we can't help them, we're not therapists. Well, I am, but most of our, our volunteers are not therapists and we don't, and they're not there to practice therapists, but we can connect them with therapists that can help. And a lot of our Secular uh, therapy project therapists are well-versed in things like post-traumatic stress disorder and religious trauma syndrome. And I will tell you, Chris, a ton of people that come to us are experiencing religious trauma. And in fact, you might go look at my recent talks on religious trauma. I can give you those links if you want. This, the, the symptoms are not unlike somebody who came back from Iraq. And every time there's a firecracker goes off, they want to get their AK-47 out and start shooting. I mean, it's that's kind of an exaggeration. But what I'm saying is that if you have these kinds of extreme reactions to your normal environment, it's probably a sign of PTSD. And you, what if you were beaten from the time you were three or four years old by your parents because you didn't learn your Bible verses properly? Or you were humiliated in front of the whole church because you had sex before marriage. Or you were castigated in front of your family because they caught you masturbating. That kind of shit can be traumatic. Traumatic in the same way that being in a war zone can be traumatic. I mean, a civilian in a war zone with bombs falling around is probably going to experience PTSD. And that's kind of what you got here. You're living... A child like that is living in an unsafe environment. And so their body and their brain is going to do as much as it can to survive within that environment. Well, if it's a hostile, dangerous environment that you could get hit at any time, or you could you could lose food. Your parents might say, well, you can't have supper tonight. You know, or you or you're all your we're not gonna let you visit your friends anymore, you know, or we're gonna send you off to to a place to pray the gay away. I mean, there's just so many things that are happening to children at young ages that that lead to PTSD in adulthood. And we're just now coming to the place where we can recognize this for what it is. Religions cause trauma. One of the areas that you've talked about before about where this trauma takes place and and where religion distorts people's views and ideas about things is in the domain of sexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you did write a book called God and Sex. No, no, it was Sex and God. Sex and God, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) 
well, it's important because sex should always come before God. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, chapter five of my book, The God Virus, was on sex. And of all the of all the chapters in that book, that's the one chapter that got more response, more emails, more texts, more Facebook posts than anything I've ever seen. And it, and it, it inspired me to well, maybe I should write about sex. It's an area I really know a lot about, and I've studied my whole right. I'm a psychologist. Aren't we supposed to all be perverts? You know. So <laughs> I. So that's what I did. I started. I, I this and I again. I look at. Just as I looked at the literature in atheism with Bennett, Harris, Dawkins, and such, I looked at the literature on sexuality. And what I noticed was, real quick, there's never been, and, and I'm, I am not going to exaggerate here, there has never been a book written from a secular perspective about sexuality. Never. There's lots of books written about sexuality from a religious standpoint, but nobody ever sat down and said, Let's look at religion and sex. There's nothing ever been done like that. And, and I see an opening. I'm, when I see an opening like that, I can't, I can't not do it. It's just too much, too, temptation, too much of a temptation. So I started writing about it and realizing, you know, when you write about something, you learn a lot. I already knew a hell of a lot, but I learned a lot more by writing the book. And what I, I subtitled the book, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. And that's pretty, pretty much the key to the whole book. When you when you're raised within any patriarchal religion, any patriarchal religion, your sexuality is going to get distorted, and that's just the nature of patriarchal religions, because the ownership and la- ownership is really important. Ownership of property, and I write about this extensively in the book. Ownership of property, and who's going to get that property when you die? Your children. So you need to own your wife. So that I'm talking from the male perspective here, of course, you need to own your wife. So, you know, those kids are yours. So, you know, your property is going to your kids and not some interlopers kids. And so, therefore, you take the autonomy away from the wife. Oh, and by the way, your daughters, you don't want your daughters marrying somebody that's going to take your property. So you take your daughter's autonomy away. And as long as the sons have got autonomy, then, then we're OK. And that's the way patriarchal religions work. So I really explored that. How does how does this distort sexuality? What if we what if we looked at other cultures? What if we said, wait a minute, is Christian is Christian culture the only kind of sexuality there is out there? Is Muslim or Jew, Jew, Jewish sexuality is that the only kind of sexuality? And if you subtracted those religions from the planet, well, let's subtract Buddhism and Hinduism too, just while we're at it because they're all patriarchal religions. If you subtract those from the planet, and then you go and look at what other cultures think about sexuality, it looks nothing, nothing like Christian sexuality or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. So I, I quickly recognized anthropologically, and I write about this in the book, that there are many sexualities on this planet. The problem is we're living in this Christian sexuality bubble and we think that's normal. And that's terribly wrong. It's, it's like when you, if you tie a tree down, if you take a young tree and you, you bend it over and you tie it down, the tree is going to bend over and then it's going to turn and start going back up again. So 20 years from now, you'll have a tree that's the trunk is angled one way and then it goes straight up because it seeks light. It is you have distorted the growth pattern of that tree. That's what patriarchal religions they distort the sexual growth patterns of people so that people end up expressing their sexuality in harmful ways. I will just give as my main evidence Catholic priests. Why the hell do we see so much child sexual abuse among Catholic priests? Well, it's largely because. The Catholic priest's own sexuality has been grossly distorted in ways that the priest, of course, has no appreciation for or understanding. And so they go out and they act out and they hurt other people. They hurt children under their care. 
because of their distorted sexual ideas. And this, I mean, people say, well, you became an atheist just so you could have all the sex you wanted. Well, yeah, that's probably true, but I always, <laughs> want, I always want more sex, so that didn't quite work out. The, uh, the thing about, oh, where was I going with that? So the thing about eight, uh, sexuality, though, is that Catholic priests, I, I, people ask me, you want to be an atheist just because you can have sex and be perverted and all that sort of stuff. And I say, you know, the most perverted kind of sexuality I can think of on the entire planet is a celibate Catholic priest. That's perversion. That's really bad. You've got somebody who's denying their own genetics to propagate an infection of religion. Priests are there to infect people. That's their purpose in life. And that's that's the way you look at the distortion um, that I'm that I write about in, in Sex and God, among other things. I mean, look at the Mormons; they distort people in a whole nother way. Look at the Baptists; they do to each each religious organization, from Buddhists to Baptists, all distort sexuality, but they do it in a slightly different way. It's like the tree we talked about earlier: take ten trees, plant them all at the same time and then tie each one of them down in a different direction. And you'll get a Baptist tree, and you get a Mormon tree, you get a Buddhist tree, but they're all going different directions, but they're all distorted. That's that's the focus of sex and God. Do you think a lot of these ideas also keep going once the religion has faded away? I mean, do you, like, even in a secular society, for example, the remnants of those ideas about sex being bad or sex being a taboo subject would still keep going, even if the religion itself is not there? Does that, does that happen? Yeah, it's absolutely, inundates our culture. We get people telling us, I've been an atheist my whole life, and I'm still feel guilty about masturbating. Well, Well, where the hell did they learn that? The religious ideas just per, um, permeate our culture. And the illustration that I think is most interesting is uh, locker rooms, boys, boys, um, locker rooms in junior high, middle school, high school. You go into a locker room, boys are very nervous about their sexuality. Of course, you know, that's normal. We're learning who we are, what our bodies are. In that place, all these other boys who are Christian or are Catholic or are Baptist, they I may be an atheist kid in that locker room. I may have been taught all sorts of positive things about sex. But when I go in that locker room, those eight those Baptist boys are gonna make fun. Those they're gonna make um, jokes about homosexuality. They're gonna make fun of each other's bodies. You know, the, all those things are going to happen in that locker room. Well, those messages are being passed along to me. I could be a total atheist. I'm still hearing that if you look different than them, or if you get a hard on while you're in the shower, or if you uh, look too much at some other person's penis, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I know. I saw it myself when I was in junior high and high school. It happens. And I realize no matter what your home background is, your peer training has got a lot of religious values in it around sexuality. Male dominance, disrespect of women. I mean, those are all taught in the locker room. Boys go in there and they talk about the girls in their class in very disrespectful ways. Where Where are they getting that from? They're getting it from their own fathers at home who are the elders in the church that they go to every every Sunday. So that is just permeating our culture, and it's still there today. Those toxic, the toxic masculinity in our culture is everywhere, and I can't emphasize that enough. But it, it, the roots of it are right in the middle, of, come right from Christianity. And if you go to Saudi Arabia, there's tons of toxic masculinity, and the roots of it are in, are in Islam. So I, I could go on and on. I, I wrote a whole book on this, by the way. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Called Sex and God, Not God and Sex. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, how, how we can live a better life, how we can kind of be better to each other, how we can 
take the most of what we have in this limited amount of time that we have on this planet together and make the most of it. What is your advice for people in things they can do, things they should take to heart to make their experience here and their lives better? Uh, well, I love that question. Thank you for asking it. That's that's a great question. And I love your book, by the way. <laughs> when we <Thank> interviewed, you. <laughs> interviewed you a couple of weeks ago, I pulled it out and it got me looking at it again. I hadn't looked at it in quite a while. So here's here's my one answer to your question. I got one answer, and that is, this is the only life you get. This is the only body you get. Learn to enjoy your body first, and you will learn then to enjoy your life. I think everybody should focus, spend some time on their body every day. And I don't mean just your body in terms of sex. I mean sex or not sex. Enjoy your body. Feel the sensations your body has. Do some meditative exercises to feel how you how you respond to your environment, how you feel about yourself. And then sit down and have a great masturbatory session. Just enjoy yourself sexually with no one else present. Because if you can't enjoy your body, you're never going to be able to enjoy someone else's body. Get familiar with yourself. Learn what you like and what you don't like. And explore. Push your boundaries a little bit. Talk with any partners you have. Teach them what you like and listen carefully to what they like. And learn to give other people pleasure even as you learn to give your own body pleasure. All those things are really, really basic humanist values. And I think in humanism, we don't talk about sex near enough. We are, I have seen too many humanists that are scared shitless of their own bodies. I once did a, as you know, Chris, I almost always start my talks with a single question. How many of you masturbate? I do. And I, I'm very frank. I, I enjoy sex. I enjoy sex with me. And I enjoy sex with other people. And I have just as much right to have sex with myself as I do with somebody else. Nobody owns me. Nobody owns my body. Nobody owns my sexuality. And I don't own their sexuality. So that respect for boundaries, that respect for for uh, what other people want or don't want, like, don't like, and learning, exploring, those are all, those will make your life so much richer, so much happier. And then you can go read Chris's book and really find out how to do it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daryl. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Chris. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash the atheist book. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.